0: Father, our hearts were thrilled uh, already by the preaching, the exposition of your word from Costi. We thank you for that. Uh, what a challenge, what an encouragement uh, that was to us as he brought your word to us from Luke 14. We are reminded of the cost of following Christ, and uh, we just thank you. Thank you for your truth. We pray that you would go with us now as we go back to your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would bring... Understanding to our hearts and to our minds to an issue that is uh, widely misunderstood amongst those who profess Christ. So these things we ask and pray in His name. Amen. 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 Okay, dear ones, this this message is entitled "Do Not Hinder Them: A Biblical and Theological Understanding of Childhood Conversion." I want to address what I believe is an issue that represents one of evangelicalisms, whatever that word means nowadays, but we don't have a better one. So evangelicalisms, one of its most dramatic departures from biblical doctrine and biblical practice, and that is the practice of baptizing very, very young children. Now, uh, I am teaching from a credo-baptistic Standpoint, In other words, I do not believe that the Bible teaches infant baptism. So when I say baptism, know that I am assuming, presupposing, that we're all on the same page here. I want you to know from the position from which I teach that I believe that the New Testament is very clear that only believers are baptized. Not infants, uh, not babies, believers. People who have made a credible profession of faith in Christ. It is those and only those people who are to be baptized. And growing up Southern Baptist, I can tell you that if a child reached age nine and had not yet stirred the baptismal waters, people start wondering, what's wrong with that kid? You know, if you're nine years old and you haven't been baptized, you're over the hill in Southern Baptist churches. It is routine to baptize children five, six, seven, eight nine years of age. The Southern Baptist Convention a few years ago did a study because they were very alarmed by the uh, declining baptismal rates that they were seeing amongst the SBC churches. And so they commissioned a study and they did about a two-year-long study uh, about why this was the case and what they could do about it. And as part of the results of their study, they found that the only age group The only age group that was showing an increase in the baptismal rates, rather than a decline, the only age group that was showing an increase in the baptismal rates was age 5 and under. 5 and under. I have a Baptist pastor friend of mine uh, back uh, in uh, Oklahoma. He He said, as Baptists, we don't believe in infant baptism. We just practice it. Well said. I want us to look first at what the Bible teaches about the nature of children. You don't have to go to some psychology book to learn about the nature of children. We all know how children are by simple common sense and observation. But the Bible also has a great deal to say about the nature of children. Number one, children are easily tossed to and fro. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. The Apostle Paul says, We are no longer to be like little children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, says that children are easily tossed to and fro. They're easily tossed to and fro. This is not written there by mistake, this is not there to just take up the white spaces. This is from the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God teaches us that children, by their nature, are easily tossed to and fro. And parents, you know this to be true. We all know this to be true. You can tell a little child just about anything you want to tell him, and he or she is going to believe it. What captures a child's attention one week may be completely disinteresting to them the next week. They're easily tossed to and fro. Also, children think very concretely. Children don't have the capacity to think in abstract thoughts, really. They're, they're, they think very, very concretely. You remember the uh, Good Morning America show years ago when I was growing up, and my parents would wake me up and my sister Kelly up and get us up and get ready, get us ready for school that day, and um, my mom would fix them some breakfast, and a lot of times... She had the TV on watching Good Morning America. And I can remember Willard Scott. Remember Willard Scott, the weatherman? And Willard Scott would come on to do the weather forecast, and he would give the general weather forecast for the entire nation. Well, my parents have a house. They still live in the same house in which I was raised, but their address is number 8 Great Lake Road in Vicksburg, Mississippi, deep south vicksburg mississippi great lake road and from time to time i would hear willard scott talking about what the weather was doing in the great lakes region and i just thought man that is so cool willard scott is telling the whole country what the weather's gonna be like on my home street i just thought that was the coolest thing in the world and i can also remember getting very perturbed at willard scott because i'd also hear him talking about Snow in the Great Lakes region, and we never had snow in Vicksburg, Mississippi. You see, children think very concretely. You've heard of Justin Boots, the cowboy boots, Justin Boots, brand name. I thought those were named after me. I did. (laughs) Egotistical, I know. But such is the mindset of a child. Okay. They think very concretely. They don't think in abstract terms. They have very little life experience to fall back on. Okay. A child does not have the needed life experience to be able to evaluate things and, and make difficult decisions about weighty matters of life. They just do not have that ability. Childish thinking and reasoning... Childish thinking and reasoning. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. The Apostle Paul says this, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. So again, we have very clear evidence from from the Word of God that there is a difference between children and adults. Children do not think the, way, the same way adults think. They do not reason the same way adults reason. There is a difference. I want to show you a video clip. This is from a quote-unquote church in Tampa Bay, Florida. This is pastored. I hate to even use that term because this man is not a pastor and he does not have a church. But this is from Rodney Howard Brown's church. Rodney Howard Brown is a man who not so humbly refers to himself as the Holy Ghost bartender. But he has a church in Tampa, Florida. He's Word of Faith, uh, Prosperity. And of all of the clips that I have in my seminar, and I have dozens and dozens of jaw-dropping heretical clips, this clip might anger me just about as much as any of them do. But watch, watch this from Rodney Howard Brown's church. Watch this little girl that they have on stage. Watch this.
1: Come on. Well, <laughs> today, tonight, I'm going to be preaching uh, about um, receiving the blessings, like in First Kings 18:41. It it says, I hear the abundance of rain. I hear the abundance of rain. I hear the abundance of rain. And I was praying for my friend, my next door neighbor. And I had my funnel open, so I was receiving a lot of water. And um, so when I prayed for him, he started speaking in tongues. I want like speak, and he just want to
0: man there was the wolf Rodney Howard Brown I'm not mad at that little girl I am very angry at that wolf that masquerades as a pastor named Rodney Howard Brown I am very angry at all of those ridiculous adults in the church that thought that was a good thing Every biblical parameter there is on preaching, every biblical parameter there is on being a, having a position of spiritual authority in the church, every, every biblical parameter there is on the gift of tongues, the gift of languages, was just broken. That made a mockery out of God's Word. I'm angry at the adults who should know better. I'm not angry at that little girl. That little girl is, what, probably 11 maybe, 11, 12 years old? She has no idea what she's doing. No idea. What is she doing? She is simply modeling. She is aping what she has seen practice before her. She's seen this done in the church. She's learned it from her parents. She's learned it from everybody else in the church. And she's just aping what she's seen. She has no idea what she's doing. No idea. She's reflecting the culture in which she was raised, she's reflecting the culture in her quote-unquote church. That's it. She has no idea what she's doing. And she's 11, 12 years old. Children are easily tossed to and fro, easily tossed to and fro. Children think like children. They reason like children. But when we become men, when we become women, we do away with those childish things. Children adopt the worldview in which they are raised. Okay? They adopt the worldview in which they are raised. Children, by their nature, are malleable. If you were to take that same little girl that we just saw, and instead of raising her at that church in Tampa Bay, Florida, instead take that same little girl and raise her in India, she'd be a Hindu. You take that same little girl and raise her in Saudi Arabia, she'd be Muslim. You take that same little girl and raise her in Thailand, She'd be a Buddhist. You say, "Take that same little girl and raise her in Ecuador?" Roman Catholic. She doesn't understand what she's doing, has no idea. Be very, very, very careful when your little five, six, seven, eight, nine-year-old child comes up to you and says, "Mommy, daddy, I want to be saved." Or I've asked Jesus into my heart. I want to be baptized. Be very, very, very careful. When you look through the language of salvation in the New Testament, it is rather adult-sounding language, is it not? Take up the cross. Jesus said, and we've already heard this morning, we are to deny ourselves, we are to take up the cross. Now, we have really lost sight of the impact of those words living in the United States of America in the 21st century. Today, when we think of taking up the cross, most of us just think of kind of making it through some tough times. Just kind of, you know, taking things on the chin, but you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and muscle through, and you just make it through some tough times. I've had a few people over the years come up to me and they say, Justin, you bear your cross well, referring to my handicap. Dear friends, my cerebral palsy is not a cross. Your cancer is not a cross. Arthritis is not a cross. Losing your job is not a cross. Having your house burned down, that's not a cross. Are those tough times? Yes. Are those trials? Yes. Is that what Jesus meant when he said, take up the cross? Not at all. When Jesus said, take up the cross 2,000 years ago, dear ones, People knew exactly what he meant because they had seen crosses in action. They knew what a cross was. A cross was a place of death, a cross was an instrument of execution. And Jesus was saying, You must be willing to die for the gospel if called upon to do so. It's a high bar. We are to deny ourselves, self denial. That word for deny oneself, it's the same word that is used to describe Peter's denial of Christ. It's a very strong word. We are to deny, like Peter denied knowing Christ, we are to deny ourselves. How many little children do you know who deny themselves? How many adults, for that matter, do you know who deny themselves? We are to forsake our family. What a, what a wonderful, encouraging word that Costi brought for us this morning. And I don't really know that I can add anything to it. But Jesus says, if you do not hate your own father, mother, wife, sisters, brothers, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. And as Costi said, that does not mean that we hate members of our own family. But what it does mean, it means that if we truly belong to Christ, if we are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, then our love for him, our devotion to him should be so complete, so unconditional, that even the love and devotion that we have for members of our own family would look like hatred by comparison. By comparison. That's a high bar. But friends, we can't pretend like Jesus didn't say these things. He did. He did say to deny yourself. He did say, take up the cross. He did say that if called upon to do so, we even have to forsake members of our own family. And we read Matthew 10, we read Matthew 12, how Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And your enemies will be members of your own household. And we read that and we just kind of gloss over it. Oh, yeah, maybe that's for somebody else not always for somebody else. Costi knows that. Very adult-sounding language, the language of salvation in the New Testament. The New Testament uses adult metaphors in describing conversion, being in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, adult metaphors. If you are a Christian, the Bible says that you are a soldier. 1 Timothy 1.18, we are to fight the good fight. 2 Corinthians 10.4, we are to wield weapons of warfare. Uses a metaphor of being a soldier. We don't look, send little kids off into battle, do we? Not only do they lack the physical ability, but they lack the mental maturity to go and do battle. We don't send little kids into battle. Also, we are to be slaves. If you are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, you are his doulos. You are his slave. This is adult metaphors. And also, we are the bride of Christ. We are betrothed to Christ, 2 Corinthians 11. We are, we are his bride. This is adult-sounding language. If your little girl were to come home from school one day, your little seven, eight, nine year old girl were to come home from school one day and say, Mommy, and Daddy... Billy's my boyfriend and Billy and I are gonna get married would you think that that was cute of course that's cute would you think that your little girl is sincere in her desire to marry Billy actually she would be sincere as sincere as a little eight-year-old girl could possibly be about such matters but chances are you wouldn't be picking up the phone calling the church reserving the sanctuary for the happy occasion right It's adult-sounding language. Adult-sounding language. Children think like children. They reason like children. Think about this. Contrast the nature of children with the nature of salvation. Let me put it in these terms. Most 5, 6, 7, 8, 9-year-old children, I've talked to children 8 and 9 years of age who still believe in Santa Claus. Now think about this. In most Southern Baptist churches, you're over the hill if you haven't been baptized by age nine. But also at age nine, a child's intellectual capacity still allows for belief that there is this fat man in a red suit who is pulled on a sled by a team of flying reindeer all around the world and he visits every home on the planet in one night. And we're going to trust a child whose intellectual capacity allows for belief in that. We're going to trust that same child to be able to wrestle with sin, righteousness, the futility of good works, the holiness of God, eternality. I can still remember, I I can see it in my mind's eye right now, the very first time that it ever really registered with me that I was not guaranteed with 100% certainty that I would see tomorrow. It was in the fifth grade in Mrs. Johnson's science class. And I can remember she made this comment off the cuff and she said, we don't know that we're going to live tomorrow. Some of you might get killed in in an accident riding home on the bus. And I thought, That was the first time it ever dawned on me that, that I wasn't 100% guaranteed that I would see the next sunrise. That was the first time my own mortality really registered with me. And I was in the fifth grade. In the fifth grade, you're what? 11, 12 years old? 11 years old? Do you know when I was baptized the first time? When I was seven. And it, it, my own mortality didn't even register with me until four years later. It's a real disconnect between what we are doing in our churches and what we see in the New Testament. I want to say this. I think most all of us in here would have very much affirm the sovereignty of God and salvation. I am a big believer in the sovereignty of God and salvation. You have to do some real gymnastics with the text to get around the doctrine of election in the Word of God. All that the Father has given me will come to me. John 6, 37. Not some may come. All that the Father has given me will come to me. Acts 13, 48. As many as were appointed unto eternal life believe. The sovereignty of God is all throughout the Bible. But you know what else is all throughout the Bible? The responsibility of man. That's in there too. That's in there too. Just one example. Luke 14, 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? The Bible affirms the sovereignty of God and salvation. It also affirms the responsibility and the accountability of men. Both of these things are true. Now, that may seem irreconcilable to our fallen, finite minds, but the only reason it seems irreconcilable is because our minds are indeed fallen and finite. The Bible teaches both. Both are true. There will be a cost to following Christ. Salvation is free. Salvation is free. Discipleship is not. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Notice this text does not say some who live godly in Christ Jesus may be persecuted. It says all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And dear friends, there are no exception clauses there unless you live in the United States of America. Now, we don't face in this country hard persecution. Okay, we don't live in North Korea. We don't live in Iran or Syria. We don't live in a country that is overtly persecuting in a physical way Christians. not yet anyway. But even though we don't have hard persecution, if we're living godly in Christ Jesus, if, if we are living out what we profess to believe, not just claiming to be a Christian, but actually living out, living it out, we will have at least some soft persecution. That will come. And if you haven't experienced some soft persecution somewhere along the road, you need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Alienation from friends, alienation from family members, ridicule, opposition, breaking of relationships, losing relationships, even losing relationships maybe with members of our own family. We don't go seeking it out. You don't manufacture trouble when there's none there. But if you're living godly in Christ Jesus, there will be trouble. There will be persecution. And a little child cannot understand this. Now, I want to look at one verse that is often used in support of baptizing children. And I deal with this much more in depth in my book. But Luke chapter 18, verse 16, Jesus says, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. This verse is often used in support of uh, encouraging children to, quote-unquote, ask Jesus into their heart and make a profession of faith and get baptized at early ages. Now, upon first reading it might seem that that would be a compelling case but not when you break it down and look at it the term here the word here for children in the greek is the word pideon and pideon denotes not older children it denotes young children and we know that not only from the meaning of the word itself but we also see this because there is a parallel account of this in mark's gospel chapter 10 verse 16 parallel account and mark's gospel adds the detail that christ took these he took them in his arms. So these are young children. These these are small children. These are toddlers. Maybe not infants, but they're, they're young children. You don't scoop up a 14-year-old in your arms. You know, these are young children. So permit the young children to come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. That's an important phrase, to such as these. Dear friends, there is a big difference between a childlike faith and a childish faith. Okay? Big difference between a childlike faith and a childish faith. The point that Jesus was making is this: is that children are completely dependent upon their parents for their physical well-being. Completely and totally dependent upon their parents. A little child does not go off and and get a job. A child does not pay the mortgage, pay the rent. A child doesn't fill out tax forms. A child doesn't go and and get the transmission fixed in the car. Children don't do these things. They can't provide for themselves. They're completely and totally dependent upon their parents for their physical well-being. In the same way, you and I are completely and totally dependent upon God for our spiritual well-being. A child brings nothing to the table. A child doesn't contribute. You and I contribute nothing. We bring nothing to the table. Our works are as filthy rags. The only thing that you and I contribute to our salvation is our sin. That's it. That's the point. The point that Jesus was making is just that, that children bring nothing to the table. You and I bring nothing to the table. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these, those who recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy, that there's nothing that they can do to earn God's favor. That's the point he was making. This is not a verse in support of baptizing young children. Not at all. let's look at the biblical record the biblical record very interesting when we read the book of acts written by luke luke was a physician we know that from colossians chapter four he was a physician and as a physician luke was a man of great detail luke in the book of acts records thousands of people being saved thousands of people being baptized both individual conversions and mass conversions And in none of these accounts will you find any children. Nowhere. Nowhere. Thousands of conversions, not one of them refer to children. Children are mentioned 22 times in the first five books of the New Testament. So it is not that children were not present. Undoubtedly, they were. They're mentioned 22 times in the first five books of the New Testament. So they were there. It's not that they were absent, they were there. But a child is never baptized in the New Testament. Not only do we not see any children being baptized in the New Testament, we do not even see any children being referred to as a disciple. Without exception, without exception, Luke always uses the term for adult man, aner, and adult woman, gune. You don't see any pideons being baptized. You don't see any pideons being referred to as children. Adult man and adult woman. A nair and gune. This is what you see in the book of Acts. In fact, the youngest example that we have of a conversion in the New Testament is Timothy. You remember Timothy. Paul met Timothy on his first missionary journey in the town of Lystra. And the Bible says that Timothy was taught... Uh, the Scriptures by his mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois. He was taught the Scriptures from an early age. And so Timothy had a background of Bible knowledge, Old Testament Bible instruction. Paul met Timothy in Lystra, modern-day Turkey, on his first missionary journey, shared the gospel with him. Timothy was converted. And then we read in 1 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says, Let no one despise you for your youth. Now, when we read that, we think that Timothy... We think of Timothy as a boy. Let no one despise you for your youth. There may be a teenager. Do you know Paul wrote that to Timothy 15 years after Timothy was converted? Timothy was converted somewhere between age 17 and 20. That's our our best understanding. Between 17 and age 20. So he was an older teenager. And 15 years later, Paul's writing to Timothy and says, let no one despise you for your youth. So when Paul wrote that to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, he wasn't a teenager. He was a man in his early to mid-30s. Timothy is the youngest example we have definitively of anyone being converted in the New Testament. Now, briefly, say something about the age of accountability. People ask this, well, is there an age of accountability? And if there is... When is it? The Bible does not state children become accountable for their sins at age so-and-so. You won't find that in the New Testament. But I would commend a good book to you written on this subject entitled Safe in the Arms of God, written by John MacArthur. Basically, the book is dealing with what happens to babies and children who die, you know, at early ages, or what happens to them, and as the title implies, he says that that they are safe in the arms of God. And I believe that that is what the Bible teaches. Children, young children, uh, even miscarriages, abortions. Because as soon as, as soon as fertilization takes place, that's a person. Okay? That's a person. And so whether it's through a miscarriage, whether it's through an abortion, or a child who dies in an early age for whatever reason... MacArthur makes the point that the Bible teaches that they are safe in the arms of God. And I believe he's right on that. It is not that children are not born with a sin nature. They are. We are all... We come out of the womb as little sinners. We are sinners by birth, by nature, by choice. But the Bible also speaks of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18 Those who go to hell, go to hell because... It is not that they don't know the truth, it's that they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And a little child, yeah, he can do things that mommy and daddy don't agree with or told him not to do, but he's not, he's not suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. The Bible speaks of those who don't know their right hand from their left. Yes, they're born sinners, but they are not morally accountable yet for their sin. And God saves those young children, those babies, those miscarriages, those abortions. God saves them in the same same way that he saves you and I, by his sovereign grace. And he extends that sovereign grace to the very, very young who don't yet know their right hand from their left. There's much more to be said about that. He wrote a whole book on it, so I would commend that book to you. Now, if that is true, if a little child would not is not even yet subject to the wrath of God in an eschatological sense, in an eternal sense, then what is it from which they are being saved? If a five-year-old child were to die and would not be subject to eternal destruction in hell, then how is it that that same little five-year-old child can profess faith in Christ and be saved from the wrath of God which he would not even be subject to anyway? You see, there's a disconnect between what we're practicing in our churches and what we're seeing from Scripture. I believe, and MacArthur says, that uh, look for the age of accountability somewhere in the neighborhood of 12, 13. Somewhere in that. Don't look necessarily for a date on the calendar, you know, and have it X'd off, you know, and read, okay, at this date my kid's going to become... No, but just somewhere in that neighborhood a child begins to understand his right hand from his left and he begins to, to understand his sin. He begins to do that. Romans one eighteen, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and becomes accountable. So look for, uh, look for an increase in maturity level and, and their ability to think and reason. They put away the reasoning and thinking of a child and begin to move into a more adult manner of thinking and understanding. So When do we baptized? Well, I want us to look at evidences of conversion. Dear friends, hear me. God can and does save whomever he wants to save. He can and does save whomever he wants to save. But when God saves a young person, that young person does not receive a junior Holy Spirit. He receives the same Holy Spirit whom we all receive. He is indwelt by the same Holy Spirit who indwells all of us. So, when that miracle of the new birth takes place, there should be some evidences of that new birth. Briefly, let's look at these. There should be a change. There should be a change in that person's life. You cannot go from being dead in Adam, dead in trespasses and sins, to alive in Christ and there be no change. There will be a change. The miracle of the new birth is just that it is a miracle. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things made new. There will be a change. There will be a godly sorrow over sin. And this is something that I wish that there was more teaching on. There is a profound statement that Paul makes in Second Corinthians chapter 7. He talks about two different kinds of sorrow over sin, a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. Paul says that a worldly sorrow leads to death. A godly sorrow leads to genuine repentance unto salvation. What is a worldly sorrow? A worldly sorrow is that sorrow that is horizontally oriented. A worldly sorrow is that sorrow that says this. What would happen to me if my sin were exposed? What would be the consequences to me? And so we try to cover up our sin, not because we grieve over it, but because we don't want the consequences of it. What would happen to me? And so we try to cover up our sin, but secretly, you see, We still love our sin. And if we could get away with it, nobody would know about it. We'd go right back to it. That's a worldly sorrow. Paul says it leads to death, eternal death. But there's another kind of sorrow over sin. That's a godly sorrow. What is a godly sorrow? A godly sorrow over sin is that sin that is vertically oriented. A godly sorrow over sin is that sorrow that comes when we grieve over our sin because we understand that our sin grieves God. And yes, we can sin against other people like David did. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. But in Psalm 51, what did he say? Against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. He said, my sin is ever before me. He knew that he had sinned against God. That his sin was first and foremost against God. He grieved over his sin after he was confronted by Nathan. Nathan said, you are the man. He was broken over his sin. He grieved over it against you and you alone. Oh, Lord, have I sinned. And we grieve over our sin because we do not want to grieve God, his person. There is a difference as wide as all of eternity between a worldly sorrow... In a godly sorrow over sin. It is not that a Christian cannot sin. Christians can and do sin. 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That verse is often used as an evangelistic passage. It's not. In and of itself, it's not an evangelistic passage. Paul was writing that to believers. If we can, That's a relational forgiveness. Excuse me, and I say Paul and John? John was writing that to believers. It's a relational forgiveness. A Christian can and does stumble into sin, but a Christian does not swim in sin. He does not enjoy sin. He does not relish sin. He does not look for opportunities to sin. When he sins, it grieves him. And dear friends, just as much as we should want a Savior from hell, we should want a Savior from our sin. So many people are looking to Christ just for a get-out-of-hell-free card. I would submit to you if that is your only motivation. I'm not saying that that's not part of it. It is. We should fear God. We should fear hell. But just as much as we should want to escape hell, we should want to escape our sin. Godly sorrow. Repentance. Genuine repentance. Genuine repentance comes when God grants repentance. Repentance. Genuine repentance is granted by God. 2 Timothy 2, Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 11, God grants repentance. And when God grants repentance, there will be fruit in keeping with repentance. There will be fruit in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Paul said to King Agrippa, I kept declaring King Agrippa that all men everywhere should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance there will be deeds, there will be fruit in keeping with repentance. And when genuine repentance is granted by God, that change, that repentance, that fruit, it will be evidence. It will be evident to everyone around that individual. The people that know that individual who has been saved, been granted repentance, they'll be able to see that change. They'll see that fruit. The church body will see that fruit. Godly affections. If you have been Saved, If you're in union with the Lord Jesus, you will have godly affections. Once we are in Christ, we will begin to hate the things that God hates, and we will begin to love the things that God loves. Personal holiness. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives us that long list of sins. He says, do not be deceived. For neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor revilers, nor drunkards, nor swindlers, nor covetous will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul says, "...and such were some of you." Notice the past tense. You were those things. You're not anymore. You were. Such were some of you. And then he says, "...but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified." Notice those three terms washed, sanctified, justified. The two bookend terms, washed and justified, deal with the new birth, regeneration. And right in the middle, what do you have? Sanctified, sanctification. Those whom God saves, he sanctifies. There are no exceptions to that. There are no exceptions to that. If you have been saved, you have been sanctified. And we are to be growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our lives should be marked by an increasing pattern of holiness. Over time, decreasing pattern of sin. Now, do we stumble? Yes. Do we go through spiritual valleys? Yes. But over time, over time, there should be a decreasing pattern of sin in our lives, an increasing pattern of holiness. We should have a hunger for the Word. If you are in Christ, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And one of, the, one of the fruits that he will bear in your life, he will create in you a desire to read and study his word. You'll have that hunger. You will, you will hunger for the milk of the word like a, like a baby hungers for milk. He'll create in you that desire to go to God's word, to read it and study it and thereby grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to hunger for the Word of God. And when we hunger for God's Word, when we read God's Word, and we study God's Word, guess what one of the fruits will be? We will have an increasing level of discernment. Romans chapter 1, 28 through 32 is a very sobering passage of Scripture. Paul gives us a long list of sins that mark the lives of unbelievers. He he says... God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not fitting. And he says they are filled with all unrighteousness. He says sexual immorality, covetousness, gossips. They are whispers. They uh, hate God, murderers, sexually immoral. A list of horrific sins. And right in that same list of sins, you see this, this sin, undiscerning. Undiscerning. That's sobering. In that same list of sins, that passage that marks the lives of unbelievers, the unregenerate, people who have been given over, murderers, haters of God, people who invent evil things, sexually immoral, undiscerning. Because when we are saved, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. He cultivates in us that desire for God's Word. When we read and study God's Word, the Holy Spirit of God illumines the meaning of His Word to us. And over years of doing this, as we read and study and understand God's Word, guess what we're going to get? We're going to get discernment. You're not going to be able to avoid it any more than you would be able to avoid getting wet when you jump into a swimming pool. It's going to happen. Now, we're not talking about brand-new Christians, someone who has just been saved and they've got no background of Bible instruction or Bible knowledge. You know, somebody like that has just come to Christ right out of the gate, they're not going to have a great deal of discernment immediately. They should have a little bit. They should have some, but not a lot, especially if they don't come from any kind of a theological background or Bible instruction background. Clean slate, they're not going to have a lot of discernment right out of the gate. But you know what? As time goes on and they read this book... They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. They begin to understand this book. They're going to get discernment. I had a a gentleman email me a few years ago. He was very angry at me for my teaching. And he said that he and his wife are in their early 70s. And he said, my wife and I have been saved for over 50 years. He said, we love Joel Osteen. And I responded to him. I said, sir, I'm concerned for you. You claim to have been saved for over half a century, and you like Joel Osteen? Something's wrong. Dear friends, the Holy Spirit of God is not a weakling. He's strong. Those whom he saves, he sanctifies. He loves us too much, and he loves Christ too much to leave us in deception. You cannot be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God for half a century and think Joel Osteen's a good preacher. I know people who have been saved for months, weeks, who are able to tell that. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. A love for the brethren. One of the great joys that has been mine in preaching is I have been all over the world. I've been in, I think, 26 different countries now, preaching and teaching. And it doesn't matter where I am. It doesn't matter what country I'm in. It doesn't matter what color people's skin is. It doesn't matter what language is spoken, what the culture is. It doesn't matter how much they have or how little they have. None of those things matter. When I am with like-minded believers, there is an instant bond. There is an instant affection. There is a kindred spirit there. And it's just, it's just there. You just know it. And all of those superficial differences, they melt away. And I love these people. I love them because they're my family. And some of you have experienced this. They're our family. A love for the brethren. That is something that only, only the Holy Spirit of God can cultivate. There will be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation in heaven. A love for the brethren love for the brethren a steadfastness in temptation and persecution one of the marks of a genuine believer is a genuine believer will have the ability via the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God to resist temptation and to stand strong in the midst of persecution again not sinless perfection it's not that we don't stumble into sin but we don't swim in it how does a person handle temptation real temptation and, dear your friends, you're not going to tempt a six-year-old boy. You're not going to tempt a seven-year-old boy with alcohol and pornography or extramarital se- uh, premarital sex. You're not going to tempt a six-, seven-year-old kid with that. Now, you add ten years to that age, then it's a different ballgame. How do they handle real temptation? How do they handle real persecution? And, dear your friends, you're not going to be able to tell that when a, when a child is small. You're just not. You're just not. You won't know that until later, until later. So, when do we baptize? A person should be able to articulate his testimony. I am not saying discourage a child, okay? And I'm a big proponent. Men, we are to be the spiritual leaders in our home. Okay, and the primary source of biblical instruction, men, should not be coming from the Sunday school teacher. should be coming from you and me. In the home, on a daily basis, we are to be the spiritual leaders in the home. And you teach your children from a very, very, very early age, from the first time they're able to understand words, you begin to teach them the Word of God, you teach them about Christ, and you, you nurture that, you cultivate that, you, you've, and you, you water that and feed it and nourish it. Absolutely. You do all of these things. And if your child professes faith in Christ, you don't want to throw cold water on, on that boy or girl. You don't want to say, oh, no, you don't understand. No, you cultivate that. You encourage that child. You say, that's good. That's wonderful. Let's continue to read and study God's Word together and let's continue to grow together. You, you nurture that. You don't, you don't downplay it. You nurture it. You cultivate that. Encourage it. But wait... Wait, give them an extended period of time to see if they're bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, to see if, the, you, see if you see these fruits, these evidences of conversion in, your life, in their life, and wait until they can give a credible testimony. And dear friends, a testimony is not getting up into the baptistry and having the preacher ask a couple of questions. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe He died on the cross, was raised from the dead? Yes. Have you asked Him to be your personal Lord and Savior? Yes. That's not a testimony. It's not a testimony. If a person is not at the point where he or she can give a credible testimony about how Christ has changed them, then that person is not yet ready to be baptized. A credible testimony to the elders and to the church. I want to show you a video clip of a baptism that I recorded. The video is not great. I just recorded it on my iPhone. But long story short, about 10 years ago, this uh, lady named Frankie befriended my wife, Kathy, and one of her friends, Vicky. befriended them. Um, this was before I met Kathy, but this lady named Frankie claimed that she had come to Christ. Uh, she was a homosexual and had spent probably at least half of her life in, in prison, in and out of prison, just, uh, you know, way out in the world there. And she claimed that she got saved. And so Kathy and Vicky began to disciple this Young lady, or what they thought was discipling, but she wasn't truly converted. It was she was a false convert. She thought she was saved, but she really wasn't. So it lasted for just a little while. Then she went right back into the world and broke Kathy and Vicky's heart. Really did it, because they had invested a lot in her. But then about a year ago, about actually about a year ago, right now, about a year ago, uh, Frankie came back and approached Vicky first, and then my wife Kathy, and she said. I actually am saved now. I really have gotten converted. I wasn't saved before. She was apologetic. She was remorseful. She did not make excuses. She was genuinely repentant. And we went to see her baptism this past July in Billings, Montana. And I want to show it to you.
2: And today it's my privilege and my pleasure. baptize someone who's come to faith in Christ several months ago, Frankie Preston. She's been with us church for a while. She's come on Sunday nights, uh, and I'm excited. I've read her testimony. She's going to come and share that testimony with you folks, and uh, and we're going to praise God in our hearts and our minds, and then I'm going to baptize her, my sister in Christ. Come on, Frankie.
3: Every sin imaginable. I was a homosexual for most of my life. I was violent, angry, self-indulged, and in latter years a drunk. Physically alive, yet spiritually dead. A certain event in, in November 2016 had me faced had me feeling angry, unforgiving, and I, I isolated myself for several days and nights, remembering the street evangelist Ray Comfort from two Bible-believing women who tried to decipher me in 2008. I looked him up on YouTube and watched several of his videos. I had heard the gospel in the past, but never graphed it. Ray's bold approach in telling people that they will go to hell for breaking God's law, but that Christ died on the cross and on the third day rose again to pay the penalty for guilty sinners, and if they repent and put their trust and faith in him, that they would be saved. I finally understood that I had sinned against the holy God. That my sin was an offense to him. Just as in John 9, where Christ gave sight physically to the blind man, he gave me sight spiritually and guided me to the knowledge of truth. As it says in Romans 10:17, so faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. My prayers went from asking God to forgive and save me to asking him to help me forgive the person who offended me. As days, weeks, and months. Have gone by. I find myself continuing in repentance. And forgiving easier. And praying more for the lost. And at times sharing the gospel. Passing out tracts. The evidence. That God who is rich. Mercy. Call me out by name by his grace will not allow anyone to snatch me out of his hand. He says in John 10 27 through 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Just as he called Lazarus in John 11, from physical death to physical life, he's called me from spiritual death to spiritual life. And God gets the glory for his saving grace. I understand and I know that salvation is a work of Jesus Christ, and I thank God for saving me. I want to show my love and obedience in following Christ by being baptized and commit my life to being a servant of God, obeying his commands. In holy reverence to the Lord. Amen. Amen. What a testimony.
2: <laughs> well, Frankie, and I've already heard it, but is it your testimony that Jesus Christ is Lord of all? Yeah. Is it your testimony that He is your Lord and personal Savior? Yep. And it is your desire and commitment today before these many witnesses. To follow him faithfully the rest of the days of your life. Yeah. <laughs> and based on your testimony before these many witnesses, I'm going to baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried in likeness of his death, and rain, rain. <laughs>
0: Praise the Lord. That's what conversion looks like. I'm not saying you have to be saved out of homosexuality or saved out of being in prison or saved out of being reared in a, a faith-healing family like Costi was. It doesn't have to be something like that, but, but that's what conversion looks like. We are all indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, and He changes us. And if you have been saved by Christ, you should be able to give a credible testimony about how He did that and the change that He has wrought in you. And if a person is not yet ready or cannot give a credible testimony, you don't have to Know the day and the hour. You don't have to know, yeah, I was saved on March the 9th and in 1979. I remember what I was wearing. It, it doesn't have to be that. But you should be different now than you were before you came to Christ. You should be able to give a testimony to the grace of God in your life. And if a person can't do that, regardless of his or her age, not yet ready to be baptized, I love, I love it when churches do that. Don't just ask a person a few questions. Have that person give his testimony. What an encouragement that is to see a testimony like that. So, as I said, don't discourage your children. Encourage your children. But wait. Wait on their baptism. If your child professes faith in Christ on a Tuesday, you don't have to get that child into the baptistry the next Sunday morning. Wait. Give them an extended period of time, extended period, especially if you're dealing with a young child, extended years and see if they bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Baptism doesn't save. Your child is not going to lose his or her salvation. Give them an extended period of time. It's what we see in the New Testament, it's what we see modeled for us. It's in keeping with sound biblical doctrine. Wait. Not only for their sake, you don't want to give a child a false sense of assurance for their conversion. How many millions of people are out there thinking, oh, yeah, I'm saved. Yep, because I was baptized when I was seven years old. I asked Jesus into my heart. I shook the pastor's hand. I got baptized. I'm saved. I'm not living for the Lord now. Well, how old are you now? Well, I'm 57 now. No, that's that's not a Christian. For their sake and also for the sake of the gospel for the sake of the gospel. If we baptize, when we baptize people who are not yet truly converted, when we baptize children who are not yet truly converted, but we proclaim them Christians and then they grow up, you know what's going to happen? They're not converted. You know what's going to happen? They're going to live the way the world lives. They're going to they're live like lost people because that's what they are. Oh, but I'm a Christian. I was baptized when I was seven. That brings reproach on the gospel. So not only for their sake, but for the gospel's sake. Do not hinder them by giving them a false sense of, of assurance of their salvation. Do not hinder them, but wait, wait on their baptism. Let's close in a word prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you that it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also to the Greek, we thank you that those whom you save, you change. And Father, may we take these things seriously. May we give them the weight that they are due. May we give them the weight that your word gives them. Take these things very seriously, not only for the sake of the individuals, but for the sake of the gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.